Well, this morning we'll continue our tour of heaven. Um, this is our third week, and we've been going through Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be going through the whole book of Ephesians, but you can turn to Ephesians with me this morning. And really, Ephesians is a tour of heaven, and our tour guide is the Apostle Paul. Um, actually, we learn in another place that Paul actually was, was caught up into the third heaven. So he is speaking with some actual experience, having gone up there. And uh, the Apostle John, also in a vision, being taken up to the throne room and seeing all the saints praising God and glorifying God for, all the, the, for the Lamb on the throne... And that is why Ephesians is so unique because in another place, I was just thinking about it as we were praying in 1 Corinthians 15 where he just states very matter-of-factly the gospel is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again according to the scriptures. If you believe it, you're saved. It's very basic, very simple. But there's so much more to that that we look at in Ephesians. There's this adoption that we look at that when you believe God actually, you've been adopted into his family. There's this election from before the foundation of the world. So we're continuing our tour, and what we've seen already, as we've looked up into the heavenlies, or as Colossians 3 says, to set our minds on things above, as we look above, we see that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, that there's this package that's been given to us in Christ Jesus, that if we're in Him, we have everything. You might not have known that if you're looking just on the things of the earth. When you see from heaven's perspective you see you have everything in christ you have every spiritual blessing you see it from heaven that he chose you from before the foundation of the world and foreordained you unto the adoption of children that's what you see from heaven some days i don't see that because i'm not my mind's not set on things above some days it's just i have a real earthly perspective and maybe the only thing i can see is you know christ died for my sins and and that's all right but God wants us to set our minds on things above to see that there's so much to that, that he died for your sins, that you've been forgiven. There's so much involved in that. We saw that uh, the whole purpose of this, of, of it all, the, the creation, the incarnation, salvation, all of it, the purpose is for the praise and the glory of, the praise of the glory of God's grace. So we all, we all know, hopefully, as Christians, that we're here to glorify God, but specifically, we're here to glorify His grace. And um, I hope that you've seen that in heaven as we've been there. I hope that you've seen that we will be praising God, and we could praise God for many things. And I believe that the angels praise God for many things. In heaven, the angels praise God for His justice. When God executes justice, the angels worship Him. And we in heaven will worship God for His wisdom and His knowledge but the, the thing in heaven that will cause us all to fall on our face and just adore God is the grace of God. That is the ultimate point of praise that God is bringing us into, that God is doing everything for to the praise of the glory of his grace. We see the redemption from heaven. We see the forgiveness of sins. We see the riches of his grace in heaven. It's like we see this, um, this never-ending... Imagine rolling hills of gold, you know. You, see, you know what it looks like to see rolling hills if you've been to Wyoming, you know. But um, it, imagine gold, just riches as far as the eye can see. As we looked at the other week, it's the unlimited wealth of God's grace. From heaven you see that. From earth, sometimes you think it's just this little dose of grace he gives you and it just gets you by. But when you see from heaven, it's this vast wealth that just goes on. God is rich in grace, and it's, un- it's unsearchable. You'll never find the end of it. We see one church in heaven, verse 10 of chapter 1. We see God gathering into one place in Christ everything. This one church that glorifies him. That's the, mis- that's, that's the, the whole point In verse 9, this is the mystery of his will, that in the fullness of time he'd gather into one place a people to praise him. 
So we see God's purpose. We see it taking place. Actually, the neat thing in, in Revelation, John is actually seeing people being added in as they're being killed, of course. But he's seeing them in heaven, just praising God and joining that heavenly chorus. It's an amazing thing. We see an inheritance that we've obtained. We've obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, verse 11, after the counsel of his own will. We see God's sovereignty in heaven. We see God ruling over everything in heaven. Sometimes if we just see from earth, we can get worried because we think that maybe God's not in control. Just set your mind on things above. God works all things after the counsel of his own will. Wow. And so... We've looked at the past. We've looked at before the foundation of the world. we looked at the present in history and time. We've looked at Christ's death. But um, today, we're going to continue and read from just two verses today, 13 and 14. This morning, we're going to look at uh, a future aspect as well from heaven. And of course, they all overlap. The past, the present, the future what God has done in the past, what he's done in time, what he's going to do, it all overlaps. They all touch one another. Because he's done, because he's chosen us, he died for us, he adopted us, because he adopted us, the future is secure, we're going to see. So, so let's continue the tour with Paul, and we'll read verse 13 and 14. In whom you also trusted... After that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Let me just pray one more time before we begin. Heavenly Father, We thank you for this letter that you have given us, your church. And we thank you for inviting us to come up and see. And Father, we thank you for what we see up there. Lord, we thank you for the wealth of grace that gives us hope, peace, joy. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his redemption. And Father, I ask that these words that we read uh, just now, that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts. You would cause the word to sink down into our ears. You would cause us to be changed by the living word of God. Help us to set our mind above, Lord, this morning and be changed by it. And we give you glory, for all things are to your glory, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we don't have a music stand today, so just this stool. But uh, You'll notice in verse 13, it starts by saying, In whom you also. Now, like last week, we're jumping right into the middle of a really long sentence. Um, actually, I, I listened to the recording from last week, and I said that the sentence was from 4 to 14, but I made a mistake. I meant to say 3 to 14. It's longer. So this, this section from verse 3, where he starts in praise to God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it ends in verse 14, this long sentence of Paul. One long Praise to God. It's all anchored on the blessed in verse 3. So you could just, you could read each verse and go, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you could just keep going back because it's anchored there. It's a, it's a hymn of praise. It's like in our hymns, we, we declare all that God has done for us. We declare the riches that we have and we're praising Him for it. So we're jumping into the middle of it though, so we need to sort of find out where we are here. Uh, in whom you also trusted. Who is the you also trusted? Do you notice it says you also? Why does it say you also? Because hasn't he been talking about them the whole time? Hasn't 
I mean, now he's addressing the Ephesians. You also, Ephesians. But hasn't he been addressing them the whole time? You'll notice at the beginning he says to the saints in Ephesus, blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So he's certainly talking about the Ephesians there. But I just want you to notice that something does change in this sentence in verse 11. It's similar to verse 13. He says, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. Now, he's been using the word we since verse 3, or us. And he's been talking about the Ephesians and myself. Paul's been saying, me, Paul, and you guys, blessed be God the Father who's blessed us. And he's been including everybody in it. In verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, in whom we have redemption. He's talking about the Ephesians and himself. 8, 9, 10. It's all we. It's all everybody together. But he shifts in verse 11, and you know he shifts because he says the word also. In whom we also. So who is the we also in verse 11 and the ye also or the you also in verse 13? Because we know there's a difference. And what is agreed upon by uh, the commentators of the New Testament is that we also are the, the, first, the, the first people who trust it, as we see in verse 12. You just read on, it will tell you. In whom we also have obtained an inheritance, and in verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So who are those who first trusted in Christ? The ones who first trusted in Christ, it's understood to be those first Jewish believers who trusted in Jesus. That first Jewish group who believed. That's what uh, is agreed upon, and I believe that as well. That's what it's saying. So he's saying, we who first trusted in Christ, the first Jewish believers, we, were, we obtained an inheritance, we were foreordained according to the purpose of him that works all things, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So do we say, oh, that's too bad because we're left out of that. And he says, no, no, you also, Ephesians. Now he's saying, you Gentiles who later believed. So we Jews who first believed are to the praise of God's glory, and we have obtained an inheritance in the family of God to the praise of his glory. And you also, later Gentiles who have believed, you also have obtained an inheritance in the family of God and are foreordained unto the praise of God's glory. You also. Now, the big question is, why does Paul even make that distinction? I mean, why doesn't he just flow on with the we of the whole package? You know, we Ephesians and Jews and everybody. And the reason why he makes that distinction is so that he can emphasize the fact that there's no special advantage between Jew and Gentile. That it's, there's no special privilege because you were the first to believe or you were later to believe. He simply wants to make the distinction to say, we obtain this, and you also obtain this very same thing. There's no difference. Even though there was a difference in time, even though there's a difference in race, there's no difference. We're all one in Jesus Christ. That's the reason he makes that difference. We who first trusted have this, and you also have this too. There's no disadvantage or advantage. You ever feel that way? Like, Maybe we do sometimes. We feel like, well, he's been a Christian longer than me, so he has more blessings than I do. It's not true. Or that guy, you know, he, uh, he's Jewish. He's got, more, he's got kind of an edge on this whole thing. It's not true. <laughs> the Jews have this, and the Gentiles have it too. And in another place, in another letter, Paul says it this way, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. You're all one. So that's the reason he makes that distinction. The we also first trusted and the you also later. He just makes that point to show we're all in this together and we're all one in Christ. There's no difference. That's, what, that's the beautiful thing. I'm glad he pointed that out. Just read that on your own maybe later today and just think about it. You'll see it if you don't see it right now. Now, what happened to the ye also? In whom you also, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now he's going to say what happened to you. How did you get in? How did the Ephesians get in? What did they do? 
And this will make up uh, what we're going to look at this morning. This will be the bulk of it. Um, there are three things that happened to the Ephesians that brought them in, that gave them that inheritance, and that made them a part of the family of God. I call it the making of a saint, if you will. At the beginning, he says to the saints. Well, how did you become a saint in the first place? And he's going to show us how you become a saint here. It's very simple. It's remarkably simple. But there's three things, and we're going to look at them. The first thing is they heard. The second thing is they believed. And the third thing is they were sealed. They heard, they believed, and they were sealed. That's it. That's what happened to them. This is how they got in. And this is how anyone has to get in. This isn't just exclusive to the first century. This isn't just the Ephesians. This is the normal Christian way in. This is the normal way in. And it's very simple. You hear, you believe, and then you're sealed. So number one, they heard. Um, It's really important that this is very important, this hearing. Why can't you just forget the hearing part and just say you believe the gospel and then you were sealed? Why does it have to put, why does he emphasize this part you heard? Why does he say that? Because the hearing is, is, is the foundation to the whole thing. It's so important. What do you believe? You believe what you hear. And so therefore you need to hear rightly. What was the message that the apostles preached to the Ephesians that they heard? Because it says here they did hear. And hearing is so important. Hearing is paramount. If we're going to be saved, we need to understand and hear rightly. I watched um, this week, I watched a video online um, from a church in, in California in San Diego. It's called Kaleo Church. And there was this guy named David uh, Fairchild who went with a camera onto, to a fair and he just asked people, what is the gospel? He asked this one question, what is the gospel and what do you think of when you hear the word gospel? What kind of associations do you have with that? Because it just, he, wanted, he wanted to see and make this video on what do people think of when they think of the gospel? And it was amazing, just all these different people he asked of every flavor you could tell of people. And, um, and I wrote here some of the common answers. Uh, one really, really common answer was, I don't know. So they've just never heard. They just do not know what the gospel is. Like they just kind of go on the camera and just kind of stare at it like a deer caught in the headlights, you know. Uh, I don't know. And they think about it too. They really think about it and they don't know. Uh, some people would say the Bible is the gospel. Um, the word. Some people said it was the words of Jesus was the gospel. The example of Jesus, the life of Jesus that we're supposed to follow. Um, one girl said, oh, I think the gospel is just that which you believe and you don't really know it's true, but you just believe it with all your certainty and you'll give your life for it. <laughs> Like there was just, it was really obvious there was just, an, an, there was a confusion. People just don't know what the gospel is. In Romans it says, how can you believe unless you've heard, right? How do people believe the gospel if they don't even know what the gospel is? This is a challenge for us as believers. Maybe we, sometimes I think we look, we, we are hardened against non-believers. Well, why don't they just believe, you know? Why don't they just figure it out? Well, most people have no idea what the gospel is. They have no clue. And the Bible says, go into all the world and preach the gospel because people need to hear it first. And how can they hear unless there's a preacher? So when it says here, you heard, it's because somebody preached the gospel to them. They didn't just figure it out. It's not something that you just figure out. It's not something that you just sit down on a, on a summer's day, you know, and just think think it through and then come to the conclusion, oh, Jesus is the Christ, I'm a sinner, and I need salvation by grace through faith. You know? It just doesn't work like that. But I think sometimes we feel that way. Like, why don't they just figure it out? Why don't they just pick up the Bible and read it? Because they have Bibles, right? You can, anyone can access a Bible. Um, but 
why would they want to even go to the Bible if they don't even get the idea that they're a sinner and they don't even know the need for the Bible? They don't understand that. Um, we're assuming too much, I think. And because we've been enlightened and we know it's bonehead obvious to us, yeah, why don't they just go to pick up the Bible? But it's because we've, we've seen. They don't see. So they don't have any need to pick this book up. They don't know. So they need to know. Uh, word association. They asked, he asked him, what comes to mind immediately when you hear the word gospel? And one common thing was choir practice, you know? <laughs> you know, Baptist church. That's what somebody said. Baptist church. Baptist choir. Uh, again, the Bible. People just do not know what the gospel is. So that's why it's important that, number one, he mentions here, they hear. They hear. They heard. They must hear before they can believe. That has to be first. Because people don't understand. People need to know. People are in darkness. What does the Bible say? Uh, I've sent, uh, well, Jesus to, to be a light to the darkness. Paul, I send you forth to bring people out of darkness into light. Uh, as a church in the light, the saints of light, we have a responsibility to take the gospel and to preach it to those in darkness. Aren't you glad somebody shared the gospel with you? Aren't you glad that at some point you heard the gospel? Aren't you glad someone just didn't say, just believe the gospel, man? You know? Come on. <laughs> what? <laughs> you have to hear. Another thing is people think that the, they, people don't know what the gospel is, so they run from it. You know, maybe, I know Charles Spurgeon in the book, beginning of his book, All of Grace, has a wonderful story of how um, there's this really poor woman at this pastor's church and the pastor wants to give some money and help this woman. And so he goes to her house one day and he knocks on the door and there's no answer. And he knocks on the door and there's no answer and he leaves. And, and, um, and the, the next day at church, he sees the woman. He says, oh yeah, I came by your house the other day. I, I had a gift for you. And she goes, oh, oh, I was there. And he, oh, why didn't you open the door then? And she says, well, I thought you were the collecting man, the man that was coming to collect the, the payments, you know. I don't have any money. I thought you were the guy coming to collect. I didn't know you were coming to give. And so the gospel, I think people run from it because they don't know what it is. Most people here in Utah think the gospel is this big set of rules you have to keep. And if you're going to believe the gospel and join it, then you're going to have to, you know, follow all these rules. And you just, you don't want to go there. And um, the gospel, they run from it because they don't know what it is. They not, they've not heard the true gospel. They must hear it. And what is it? What is the gospel? Well, it describes it here in two ways. It says the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's just describing the same thing. But it's the word of truth and the gospel of of their salvation. Isn't that an awesome description of the gospel? The gospel or the good news of your salvation. Isn't that awesome? What a message that people need to hear. So we're not coming to knock on the door saying, here's all the things you need to do and give to the church and here's all the things that... It's actually good news. I got good news for you. Did you know that there's salvation and it's yours? Your salvation. The gospel of your salvation. It's, it's like... It's not like, hey, here's something you have to do to win a prize. It's like, hey, you won the lottery. I'm just here giving you your check. You know, hey, I've got your prize here. You just need to accept that. The gospel of your salvation. Good news. It's not good advice. It's not good commandments. It's not good news. When we preach the gospel, we are offering. We're not taking. We're giving. We're not receiving. We're going and proclaiming an announcement in 2 Corinthians, it actually says God is announcing it through you. God is beseeching you through us be reconciled to God because he's done it. He's died on the cross. That's the message of, of what the gospel is, that there's reconciliation. God has acted. God has sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins. It's all finished. All you have to do is be reconciled by accepting that. It's, it's something that God wants to give you as a sinner. It's such good news. 
It's the word of truth. That's the true gospel. We need to believe the true gospel. And a false gospel saves nobody. You can call it gospel. You can say Jesus. You can even talk about his death on the cross. But if it's not the gospel of the grace of God, that God is offering to you reconciliation and salvation by grace as a gift, it's not the true gospel. No matter how much religious words you put in there, it doesn't save anybody if it's not the word of truth, the true gospel, the gospel of your salvation. They believed it, number two. They heard it, and they believed it. They believed it as it was preached unto them. They didn't twist it. They didn't hear Paul say, such and such, and then they said, okay, but I'm going to tweak it a little bit and uh, I'm going to come out with my own little version of it. No, they believed it. They believed what he said. They believed the message. Essentially, the message is this. This is the gospel in a nutshell. If you just want to see it in a nutshell. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, he rose again from the dead, and that whoever believes and trusts in him and what he did will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the gospel in a nutshell, right there. They believed that. They didn't twist it. They didn't say, I like that part of it, that part of it. I don't like the whole resurrection part. You know, well, that was cool, but I don't like the sins part. Eternal life, I like everything, but not the eternal life part. I think you need to work for that part, but the other stuff was good. They believed it, just as it was. They believed it. You believed. Last week, we, uh, we looked at the fact that believing is trusting. In verse 12, uh, he says the same thing in just another way. Uh, it should say in your Bible something similar to this, who first trusted in Christ. So when it says they believed, it's also meaning they trusted One thing that helps you understand what faith is is perhaps using the word confidence instead. Faith is confidence in another. When you believe in Christ and when you trust in Christ, you're putting your confidence in Christ. You're putting your confidence for salvation in him. Uh, Imagine, uh, by way of some analogy, uh, imagine going to the bus stop for example, taking the bus into town. So I live in Smithfield, so sometimes I'll take the bus into Logan if I don't have a vehicle. And uh, I'm confident that that bus is going to come at the time it says it's going to come because I believe it. Because I'm confident it's going to come, I'm not worrying about how am I going to get to town, right? I'm not like sitting at the house, I'm looking at the screen where it says the bus will come at this time, I'm going, oh, there's no way I'm going to get to town today, I'm going to be late for everything. I'm not worried because I have a trust and a faith and a confidence that the bus is going to come at that time. And so I'll go to the bus and I'll wait because I'm expecting that bus to come. You know? I'm not worrying like, this is pointless. Why am I even standing here? I'm never going to make it. You know? <laughs> I have a confidence and because I have a confidence, I'm not fretting and despairing about getting to town. That's faith. Faith is trusting and it's putting your confidence and so you don't worry. Or brakes. You know, when you get into a car, you are trusting that the brakes are going to work. And you probably have so much confidence that they're going to work that you don't really think about it. You get into the car. Now, if you really didn't think the brakes were going to work, you wouldn't get into the car, right? And you're not worried, like, I'm going to die when I get in here, you know? (laughs) Like, there's no way this thing's going to (laughs) stop. I'm going to crash and kill myself. You're not. You have confidence that even though you're going at high speeds, that you're going to push the brake and the car will come to a stop. You have confidence in the brake. You're putting your faith in it. And because you're putting your faith in it, you're not worried. You're not fretting like, man, this thing's never going to stop. Or let's say you buy some ice cream and you, uh, you put it in the freezer overnight. Well, all night you're not like, oh, that ice cream's going to be melted and ruined, you know? You have confidence you have confidence that the freezer is going to work. You know? You do. 
These are not perfect analogies because these are just appliances and vehicles and things. But the idea is, is that when you put your trust and confidence in something, you cease worrying about it. You cease worrying about, oh, is it really going to freeze? Is it really going to stop? Is the bus really going to come? Because you're trusting. And that's what trusting Christ is, is when you trust that he died on the cross for your sins so that your sins are forgiven, you're not worried anymore about it. It's not, well, I believe in Jesus, but what if I go to hell? What if my sins aren't forgiven? You're just confident. I'm confident that he died for me, and therefore I don't have to worry about it anymore. I don't have to worry about it anymore. Do you see what faith is? That's faith. Faith is confidence in Jesus, trusting him, that what he did, did. What he did pays the price. And when the Bible says you're justified by faith, it means you're justified by faith through his blood. And so you don't have to worry anymore. Now, sometimes we do worry. And uh, I was thinking further about another analogy. And sometimes you might get on an airplane. Now, sometimes confidence can be weak and confidence can be strong, okay? But it still is confidence. That's what faith is. Now, sometimes a person will get on a plane and they're very afraid because they're not, they've never flown before and they think that Man, this thing's going to maybe gonna crash and it's up in the air and it's like way out of my comfort zone. And, and maybe they don't have much confidence. But I'll tell you, they have to have some confidence because if they had no confidence, if they believe that, that there's no way that plane's going to fly and I'm going to crash, they'd never get in the plane. But maybe they get in the plane and they're a little afraid and the plane's taking off and they're, they're throwing up in the bag, you know, and they're just like, oh my goodness. Um, and then... They make it, and they go, oh, that wasn't too bad, I guess. And then they try, they fly again, and their confidence builds in that plane. So that eventually they get on the plane, and it's just like walking down the street. You know, they don't even worry about it. So sometimes faith can be strong, and faith can be weak. And sometimes a person believes in Christ, and it's like getting on that plane. It's, I mean, it is such an amazing thing. When you realize, I am a sinner, and I'm guilty, and God is a just God, I Boys, how can, you know, how can simply putting my faith in this save me? And maybe you do. You put your faith, God, I'm going to trust you, but you're a little nervous. But you realize as you read scripture, you, your confidence grows because, yeah, here it is in, in Ephesians and Galatians. It keeps affirming the fact that whoever believes is justified from all things. You know, maybe you were raised your whole life thinking that you had to do all these works in order to be saved. You have to stop your sins. And maybe you get a glimpse of one verse and it's beautiful and you hang everything you have on that, but then you're still kind of worried because what about if other places in the Bible contradict that? You know? Because of all the things you've learned. But as you study the scriptures and you realize, wow, there's nothing in Ephesians that says it, nothing in Philippians, nothing in... Whew, I mean, our confidence starts to build. It's by grace I'm saved, not by works. Right? So before you were hanging everything on that one verse. You were holding on for dear life with a little bit of worried, you know, worry and, you know, but, but it grows. Your confidence in Christ grows. And, uh, and as your confidence in Christ grows, your fear and your worry goes away. Your worry of, of, etern- of, of death and of what's beyond that. Of, are you going to make it? Yes, because Jesus died for me. He loved me and he gave himself for me. And that's it. There's a beautiful hymn. I hope we'll eventually learn here if you guys don't already know it. Um, where it's called um, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. It's not in device nor creed. And um, I trust the ever-living one. His blood avails for me or something like that. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. It's like, I don't need anything else. You died for me. That's enough. And that speaks. That's good. That's, that's a song of confidence in Jesus. Hopefully we'll learn it. Does everyone know that song? Does anyone, who doesn't know that song? Oh, well, maybe we'll sing it afterwards. <clears throat> so here's the two things out of the three. In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news. In whom also after you believed or trusted or put your confidence in him, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. 
you were sealed. Wow. Now that's God. That's not something you do. You heard, you believed, you were sealed. Now, there's some disagreement about this in the, uh, in amongst Christians. What is this sealing? What is this sealing talking about? Now, there's some, here's the essence of the disagreement, and there's some people who think that this sealing is a subsequent occurrence, a subsequent thing that happens to you after you believe, and it's essentially when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, or maybe they use the term baptized in the Holy Spirit, it happens after you believe. It might not even happen when you believe. It's something subsequent, and you're filled with the Holy Spirit. There's The other side is, this is something that happens simultaneously when you believe. Is this subsequent? And that time could be indefinite. It could be, maybe you never get it. Sometimes, some Christians say, you'll ne- some Christians never get this. It's subsequent and they never experience it. Or is it simultaneous? Is it subsequent or is it simultaneous? Does it happen when you believe? Or does it happen after you believe? And it could be years after, it could be a day after, it could be... Never. What is this experience? Is it the filling of the Spirit like, like many believers believe? What is it? Well, I believe it is the simultaneous sealing of the Holy Spirit that happens when you believe. And I'll share my reasons with you why. In the first place, this whole passage is about all the blessings that you have in Jesus Christ. The whole context is Paul opening up this beautiful package that you have in Jesus. And the point is, is that you have everything. If you have one of these things, catch this, if you can identify in this sentence one thing that you have, then you automatically can confirm that you have everything. Because he says at the very first, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It's a one-package thing. And maybe you've only noticed you only had this one thing, like forgiveness of sins. But Paul's point is, if you have the forgiveness, and you also have the redemption. If you have the redemption, you also have the adoption. If you had that, you were chosen from before the foundation of the world. If you have the uh, redemption, the forgiveness, you're also one in the family of Christ. You've been foreordained. You've obtained an inheritance. If you've believed, you were sealed. You have it all. It's, a one, it's an all or nothing thing. You can't say, well, I have some of this. I'm working on the other stuff. You know, I know I have forgiveness, but I don't know if I have adoption. <laughs> you know, It doesn't work like that. It's a one package thing. And so I'm saying that in the whole context, Paul's opening it up, what every believer has in Jesus Christ. And so that would include also the sealing of the Holy Spirit. So there's one reason. I believe it's not this subsequent thing that not all believers have, but it's a special thing that happens for only some believers. But all believers have it. This is one of your blessings in Christ, that you've been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. The second reason why I believe it is, is because the text itself indicates that it is simultaneous. Now, some of your Bibles may use the word after. And when I read in the King James, I also read the word after, but that's not a good translation. It's not in the Greek. Uh, the Greek doesn't say after you believed. It doesn't say that. Now, of course, when you say after, you could still be saying simultaneously, but you could also be saying subsequent. But it's just not a good translation in the Greek. And um, the revised version, I'll read the verse, which is a better translation of what the Greek is saying. It's saying this, In whom you also, having heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having also believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So having believed, you were sealed. Not after you believed, you were sealed, but having believed. Or some translations may even say, when you believed, you were sealed. But it captures the Greek. When you believed, having believed, because you believed, you were sealed. That's the idea in the Greek. So the text itself tells us this isn't simultaneous. If you believe, you're sealed. Period. If you hear the gospel, if you believe the gospel, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It would be very disjointed for Paul to introduce something that isn't something you have. He's talking to the Ephesians about what they have. 
You heard, you believed, having believed, you were sealed. So the text itself says it's simultaneous. So not only is it part of this package of the whole sentence, but the text also says, and the last reason I'll say uh, why I believe it's simultaneous is because later in the book of Ephesians, Paul actually talks about the filling of the Holy Spirit. I want you just briefly to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, please. Verse 18. The filling of the Holy Spirit is a different thing than the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And I'll, and I'll point this out. In 5 verse 18, he says this. Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Or be filled with the Spirit. That's something that's continual. That's something that's ongoing. It's an exhortation to be filled every day. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's continual and it's ongoing. Now turn to chapter 4, verse 30. And Paul again mentions the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And he says this here in 4, verse 30. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. That's not continual and ongoing. That's not something that you have to continue to do. It says, you are sealed unto the day of redemption. So don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You are sealed. It doesn't say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, for you are filled unto the day of redemption. No, it certainly doesn't say that. If the sealing he talked about in chapter 1 were this baptism of the Spirit or this filling of the Spirit, then he would say, you're filled unto the day of redemption. But we know that's just not the case. Our experience of being filled with the Spirit can go, it can go up and it can go down. But you are sealed unto the day of redemption. You're sealed. It's done. It's past tense. It's final. You see, I'm always needing to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm always constantly praying, God, please fill me with the Holy Spirit. But I've never prayed, God, please seal me with the Holy Spirit. God, seal me with the Holy Spirit. I don't pray that. I thank God. Thank you, God, for sealing me with the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. So, the filling is different than the sealing. The filling is different than the sealing. So, what is the sealing of the Spirit now? So, if, if it's been, um, you know, it, it's, if we've seen that it's simultaneous with believing. If you're a believer in Jesus, the text is saying, did you know that you were sealed? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You might say, I didn't feel anything. I didn't see anything. When did that happen? Right, because we're looking in the heavenlies right now. This is something you don't see with your physical eyes. This is something that, the Bible actually, it's a concept in both the Old and the New Testament. You'll find God sealing and marking. But it's something that human beings don't see. It's something that you see very clearly in heaven. When you're in heaven, John sees, whoa, you're sealing these people over here. Whoa, Ezekiel sees you're sealing these people over here. But they didn't see anything. They didn't feel anything. This is something that has happened that we can only see from heaven's perspective. Like forgiveness. Sometimes you might not feel forgiven. But what's in heaven? You're seeing these things by faith. You've been sealed. So just accept it by faith. God has done that. And what is it? The idea of sealing has, carries this uh, wonderful idea of authenticating. So you guys... We, you know, this idea of sealing isn't just ancient. It's something that is also modern as well. This, this concept of sealing has been around for thousands of years. Um, you remember these kings who had rings, and they would seal letters with wax. And they would put their seal on the letter, and they'd actually literally seal the envelope. But at the same time, it would authenticate that envelope as being from the king and of the king's property. This is the king's letter. This is genuine. So it actually literally seals the letter, but it also authenticates uh, the letter as being from the king. And we still do that today with uh, you know, the seal of the United States of America, the government documents, authenticating it's the real deal. It's not a forgery. So the sealing of the Holy Spirit, uh, we find a little bit more insight into this in Romans chapter 8. And uh, Romans 8, verse 15 to 17. If you'd like, you can turn there briefly. But Romans eight fifteen to 17. 
talks about this ceiling. See, Paul is carrying on with the idea of your adoption in Jesus Christ. God didn't just forgive you if you're a Christian. He didn't just clean you up and send you your way. He forgave you and he adopted you. He says, I'm not going to let you, I'm not just going to clean you up and let you go. I'm going to let you stay. I want to invite you in. I want you to be mine. I'm claiming you as my own. And so this ceiling is, the ceiling of the Holy Spirit, as we'll read here in Romans 8, is what proves that you are an authentic child of God or an adopted child of God. Romans 8.15 You've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children and heirs and heirs of God joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So the spirit is the spirit of adoption. It's testifying that you are in fact a child of God and that you in fact have an inheritance. You're an heir. You've been adopted as an heir. Doesn't this sound like Ephesians 1? You've obtained an inheritance. You've been adopted. You're an heir. And so he's sealed you. He's authenticated you. Remember, in the heavenlies, he's done this. He's authenticated you as an heir, as an inheritor, as his own. Now, how do you know if you're a child of God? Okay? Sometimes we worry about this one. We're like, well, how do I know if I'm really sealed? Because I'll say it again. It is something you see by faith in heaven. But I'm just going to give you two simple ways you can know you're a child of God. And one is definitely much more strong than the other one. But the first way that you know you're a child of God is simply by understanding and believing what the Bible says. So how do you know you're a child of God? Well, see what the Bible says. The Bible says that whoever believes on Jesus Christ is sealed. Whoever believes on him is a child of God. Whoever trusts in him. And it's, it's the same with forgiveness. Whoever believes has eternal life and forgiveness. So you might worry about it and say, well, do you believe? Yeah. Well, then you have forgiveness, right? I guess so, yes, because I do believe. That's what it says, right? Yes, I believe it. And so the same thing. It says that you're a child of God if you believe. You might not feel it, but does it say it? Yeah, and you stand on that. So how do you know you're a child of God? By the word of God, by the testimony of Scripture. That's the most strong thing. It puts you to rest. I remember once I was walking down the road and I was just maybe singing a song about I'm a child of God or something like that. And all of a sudden I felt really tempted by Satan and he just said, how do you know you're a child of God? It gives you the right to say you're a child of God. And I stopped for a minute. I thought, like, ruined my moment, you know. And I stopped for a minute. But, the, you know, instantly what came to mind wasn't like, oh, well, I have this experience and I have that experience. It was just instantly John chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, um, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Do you believe on the name of Jesus today? Then you have the right to be called the child of God. You don't have to worry and say, well, how, how dare I presume to think I'm a child of God? No, if you believe you're a child of God, period. That's what it says in the Bible, whether you feel that or not. You stand on that by faith. And I remember just 1 John 1.12 just came to my mind. I spoke it and I just kept on singing. I'm a child of God. I didn't feel like one. I just believed it. And um, so that's, that's how you know. That's ultimately how you know. The second way, which is a more experiential way, if you don't know it from Scripture, you might have... You might f- delude yourself to think you're a child of God because you don't trust these feelings. You might, oh, I feel like a child of God. Well, do you believe that you're saved by grace? No, but I feel like I'm a child of God. In fact, I'll declare it. Well, I'm sorry. Scripture first. It doesn't matter if you have feelings or not. What does the Bible say? If you happen to have feelings, fine. And this is the other way. The Spirit in us as a seal. Uh, The Spirit, it says, is in our hearts. And... 
what it does is it cries, Abba, Father. So maybe you've noticed this and maybe you haven't noticed this. If you haven't noticed it, it's okay. If you just are standing on Scripture and you don't even notice, that's fine. But maybe you should, you can pray and ask God, God, help me to notice your spirit dwelling within me. Help me to notice that he's there. And uh, one way you can notice is that you, you find yourself calling God Father. And not in this mechanical way. That's the idea. It's not just because you've been taught, you know, God is your Father, but there's, a, there's in your heart, God is, you call him Father freely, and it's not mechanical. That's my point. Maybe when you pray, you say, oh, Father, and you call him it freely. Not just as a title, but... And maybe you'd notice that, maybe you don't. But it's the spirit in you that's calling him Father. You're calling him freely. Another thing you might notice is you might look back at... Maybe you haven't noticed this yet, but maybe this morning you, you look back at your life in the past and you see all these moments when certain doom should have happened. You know, I definitely should not have made it through because I know myself... I know what I am. I know I, w- I can't make it through situations like that. But I did. How'd that happen? Oh, it's t- and you notice the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. But whether you notice it or not, here it says in Ephesians, you are indeed sealed. And the beautiful thing is you're sealed unto the day of redemption. That's not something God's going to take away from you. He who knows the future sealed you. As a matter of fact, it goes on to describe it as an earnest of our inheritance. It means if you're sealed, it's a done deal. He put that down payment on and God never fails. He's going to come through. Now you and I might put a down payment on a house and fail, you know, and have to, you know, withdraw from that. But God doesn't. God doesn't start something he can't finish. And God puts a down payment on you, it's done. As we talked about earlier, he that began a good work in you will finish it. It's finished. It's as good as finished. You're sealed unto the day of redemption. It's a guarantee. So this seal is not only, not only does it authenticate in heaven, and you might notice it on earth, it authenticates you as a child of God. It even preserves you as a seal. It keeps that envelope closed. It says this is God's property, this is the real deal, and this is not going to fall into anyone's hands. This is a down payment unto the purchased possession, unto the redemption. You know, I just compare this with chapter 2. Just, just look at the weakness of Satan in chapter 2, verse 2. We're talking about Satan's people, okay? Satan's got his own people, and he's got a spirit within them. It says in chapter 2, In time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. Very, very similar. The Holy Spirit's in you working. And the spirit of disobedience is working in the spirit in, in the non-believers, in the children of disobedience. But notice the impotence of Satan. You might say, well, his plans can be foiled. And they can because God foiled them. The spirit was at work in the children of disobedience, but God snatched us out of Satan's hand. You say, well, if it can foil, if this can be foiled, well, why can't God's way be foiled? It can't be because Jesus says, no one can snatch him out of my hand. No one can snatch them. Greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world. When you were in the world and Satan was at work in you, that was bad. But you know what? God could snatch you out. God could foil Satan's plans. He had, he probably, Satan probably had all these plans for you, you know, but he couldn't seal you into the day. And God's, pulled you out of that, put his own spirit in you, sealed it with a guarantee, Satan, you can't touch this. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Amen? See? So con- con- contrasted, you see the weakness of Satan and the power of God. And lastly, the redemption spoken of here in verse 14. It is the same word in verse 14 as in verse 7, although it's a different thing. This one's referring to the redemption. In, back in Romans 8, he carries on with his, uh, the, the earnest of the down payment of the Spirit unto our redemption, or the redemption of our bodies, it says. The redemption of our bodies. 
specifically the grand finale. When everything that we see here in the heavenlies in Ephesians chapter 1 will be true in our bodies and on earth as well. This is the consummation I mentioned. One of the blessings we have in Christ. You know, one of the blessings you have in Christ is that everything that you see in heaven will one day be manifest. Will one day, the Romans even 8 says, when he comes, the manifestation of the sons of God. You're a child of God right now. But one day, he will come to be glorified in his saints. He will come and there will be consummation. There will be a finish. You know, finish is a very important thing. A consummation is a very important thing. I think maybe we underestimate it, but every song has a finish. Every movie has a finish. Every novel has a finish. If it didn't, you probably wouldn't listen to the song, you wouldn't watch the movie, you wouldn't read the book. Because a consummation is important to us. There's something lacking when there's no consummation. Imagine a, a great piece of music and it crescendos and it's about to end and then it just doesn't. You know? Or let's say the movie just ends and there's no finish. And that was what? You're leaving. There's some great emptiness there. But with God, there's a glorious consummation. There's a glorious consummation where it ends. And it's going to be the most satisfying end when that note strikes. And it's, oh, that's perfect. You know, That's a great ending to that movie. That's a great ending to that book. That's a great ending to life. That's perfect. It's perfect. See, right now we're just like, we're talking about these wonderful blessings we have. One day there's going to be this satisfaction in the ending. The grand end I just wrote here, when we shall on earth enjoy what we right now possess in heaven. It's not the escaping of our bodies, but the redemption of our bodies. Sometimes people say, well, I'll just be free from this body. You know, God wants actually to redeem it. Our bodies themselves will be resurrected like the body of Christ, without sin, completely free to enjoy the presence of God without distraction. It's the crowning day when Jesus Christ shall return to make manifest the sons of God and to be glorified in his saints. What a glorious day that'll be. What a, I mean, it's not even, I can't even do justice even describing it. So, But here, I just want you to see that there is a day coming. It says it right here. And when heaven will meet earth, basically, when all that we see in heaven when faith won't be sight or when faith will be sight. You know, we sing that song, O Lord, haste the day. We walk by faith, not by sight. Second Corinthians chapter 5. One day it won't be like that. What a day that'll be. And once again, we've seen this multiple times. How does it end? How, what does the last part of verse 14 say? How does it end? To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Amen. How many times have we seen that? How could Paul have to keep repeating it? Couldn't he even just set it at the end? It's just so much the essence of the whole thing. To the praise of his glory. And what is that glory? We've already seen it. The glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Praise God. That's the whole point. The whole end of it all. As wonderful it is to get a new body, as wonderful it is to be forgiven, as wonderful it is to have redemption. All those things are beautiful, awesome things, but they're all with this one end in view, to the praise of the glory of God's grace. So there's no need to hesitate. Let's praise God now. Amen? All right. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We praise you, Lord, for all things are to the praise of your glory. All things are of you and through you and to you. To you be glory, both now and forevermore, God. And we don't want to hesitate, Lord, just till later when we see it face to face. But God, even now by faith, we want to rejoice in all the blessings that we have right now and that we possess Lord, in heavenly places. And God, I thank you that what an honor it is and what a 
privilege it is and a blessing it is to be able to see that now, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you for allowing us to visit heaven, Lord, and set our minds above and to see that. And I pray that we would live each day with our minds set on things above where our life is hid in Christ and God. And God, that we wouldn't just forget these things. Help us to remember this that we have seen, that it would affect and change our earthly lives now, Lord, how we treat one another, how we, how we treat the lost. God, make us preachers who would declare the gospel that men would hear and be saved. Make us Christians who love one another as you have loved us. Help us to see one another from heaven's perspective as forgiven, as, as righteous in Christ, and as heirs of God and his glory, and fellow heirs together in the grace of life. Help us to see each other as, as co-inheritors, Lord. And I pray, God, that we would be people who praise you every day. We'd wake up praising you. We'd praise you throughout the day, and we praise you at night, morning, noon, and night, Lord, as the sun rises and as it sets. For you are worthy to be praised for all your mighty deeds that you've done. Mighty are your deeds, Lord, and we could talk about them forever, and we will. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. And Father, we, we pray all these things in the name of your matchless Son. In Jesus' name, amen.